good morning. Good to see you all. A very long time ago, my husband and I sent our daughter Carolina to summer day camp at a wonderful local institution which shall remain nameless. She came home on the second day with a note that said, you need to talk to your daughter about showing respect. So I asked her, what happened? She said, my camp teacher doesn't know how to keep order. And she told us things that I know aren't true. And she messed up our game, so I stood up and told everyone, let's do this instead of what the teacher is saying. And then I got sent to the office. I lucked at her all of eight or nine years old, and I suddenly saw her future spooling out in front of us. And I said, let's talk about this. I said, this will not be the first time you have someone trying to lead you who doesn't know what they're doing. So I said, here's what you do. Help them if you can. Sometime you will be in a position of leadership where you aren't totally solid and you will want to look out and see support. So be that kind of supportive person, I told her. Help them if they'll allow it. And someday, pretty soon, you'll be the leader and you will get to set the agenda and run the group. And that's what she is now. She's what they call an engagement manager at McKinsey. I called her about this story and she said that to this day, she uses that insight. When you have a poor leader, help them. She said now it's called upward feedback and being a caring people leader, but it's the same thing. We talked about how life is more than just keeping your head down and doing your task, and if it's possible to lift the group by being supportive and giving feedback, if it's possible to make the project better by bolstering a shaky leader or even a good one, you should do it. And as Christians, if it's possible to make the kingdom of God a little clearer and more present in our daily interactions, in our words and our deeds, that's what we should be about not just letting things slide downhill. And it happens to all of us at some time that we're confronted with a leader in our lives who's not so much of a leader in business, at church, in school, in our communities, in our nation, in the world. And it happened in Bible times as well. I wanna make it clear today that I'm not talking about our church at all. We're led beautifully here except perhaps by me. Today we're going to look at the story of a prophet named Daniel and the leader of his time, Nebuchadnezzar. Your other preachers this summer have described what a prophet does. They tell the people of God in a particular place and time what God would say to them. They observe their times from God's point of view. They tell their people, here's what's going to happen to us next if we don't correct our course. Often they meet the people at the edge of the cliff of history to say, here's how we got here, and here's what's going to happen as we go over the edge. The best of the prophets stay with their people to help them recover from the judgment that meets their sinful actions. They describe how God can heal them and restore their nation. Today's prophet Daniel lived during the time around 6 to 700 BC when the people of Judah and Jerusalem under King Jehoiakim were defeated by the Babylonian king. Judah's people were scattered and many people including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, were taken away into exile in Babylon. 
Daniel's time was a time of completely having to rethink how to be followers of God, away from home, away from the temple, away from everything that was familiar. It seemed to them like the end of everything, but something really good happened with God's help. The jolt to their surroundings, their losses of their usual leaders helped them to turn their faith into something portable and durable and disaster-proof. They learned that God was with them everywhere, in every place and time. But back to the original disaster. Nebuchadnezzar took all the best there was from the temple and the land, including the most gifted young people. Four friends were handpicked, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were handpicked to be housed in the king's court dedicated towards service in their conquering nation. Early on, these four young men with Daniel as their leader determined that they could and would work for this new king and his nation. They could give their best to their new home, but they could not eat at his table and they could not worship his gods. They all decide on service to that king within limits. The new king is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the ruler of a vast kingdom. And this is the way Daniel describes him. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. That sounds good. But if you'd taken a poll on the streets, supposing his nervous subjects would have shared their opinions, you would hear a description of Nebuchadnezzar like this. He's erratic, he's high-handed, he's arrogant, he's bad-tempered, moody, arbitrary. In spite of his power, he's very insecure. He's suspicious of his advisors. He's prone to firing or threatening to execute them. And he has troubling dreams. He puts his own advisors, including our four Hebrew heroes, to attest that no one can pass. Not only does he want his bad dream interpreted, he wants them to guess what the dream is without being told. The astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks, asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. And by the way, that would include Daniel and his friends. Our hero Daniel responds in a very prudent way. He asks for time, and he prays to God for wisdom. This is what his prayer sounds like. Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and the light dwells with him. And God answers his prayer. God reveals the dream to him and its meaning. Daniel gives the credit to God for this. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel and his friends know 
that kings come and kings go, but that the world is in God's hands who gives wisdom and insight. God has the real power in the world which will outlast any king. So Daniel and his friends lean on God. They reserve worship and highest honor only for God. In a time where we can worship celebrity and power, it's good to remember what Daniel teaches us about kings coming and going, but God being forever. He tells the king the dream and what it means. His dream was of a statue a huge thing, 90 feet tall, with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, with feet of clay and iron mixed. And then in the dream, a stone not cut by human hands came and struck the statue at the feet, and the statue crumbled and crashed down. The pieces blew away, and the stone that hit it became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. Daniel told the king, you are the head of gold. Your rule now is God-granted and total, but after you will come increasingly lesser kingdoms until at last we see the feet of clay. This is where we get that expression, by the way, feet of clay. The feet of clay will be broken by a stone which will fill the sky like a mountain, and that mountain represents a kingdom that will last forever. That sounds familiar to me. Does it sound familiar to you? It sounds as though the dream is about the transition from earthly kingdoms to the kingdom of God. Well, the king is stunned at this interpretation of his dream. He's filled with admiration for Daniel and Daniel's God. He promotes Daniel. He gives him gifts and rewards. And while he's in this mood, Daniel asks for his three friends to be made provincial rulers. It really seems as though this king has learned a lot about God and power. We leave chapter two of Daniel thinking that Daniel's prowess as a prophet and a man of faith really has made a difference to this king. And then we begin chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar forgets all of this. He forgets that he was impressed by Daniel's God. He forgets the foolishness of putting up big statues and expecting them to last. He forgets that there is a kingdom coming that will put all other kingdoms to an end. He puts up a huge statue of his own, but this one is all of gold, and he demands that it be worshipped. He learned nothing lasting about wisdom or God or who the real king of kings is. He liked hearing that the head of gold in the first statue was his own rule, so he makes the whole statue gold. Is the new statue a portrait of himself? Maybe. Is it a, a portrait of his God? Maybe. We don't know. But he demands that the statue be worshipped as a god or else. And here are the new rules. Then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now remember, Daniel asked that his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be promoted as provincial leaders. And they are there at the time of this story, and Daniel doesn't seem to be anywhere around. He's not there to help them. 
And his three friends have enemies in the court, and the enemies are tattletales. This is the tale they bring to King Nebuchadnezzar. They say, there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Well, this is the kind of dangerous situation that these three friends used to let Daniel stand up and deal with. But here the three of them are in the absence of their natural leader. And they step up and become leaders themselves. They've learned during their time with Daniel that there are things they cannot do. They cannot worship anything or anyone other than God. So they're not participating. They are leaders when the cost of that leadership looks as though it will be death. And this is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What they're saying is this. Even if God does not deliver us, we won't do it. Even to save our lives, we won't worship your idol. This is a very courageous statement to make. They really are leaders after the fashion of Daniel. They stepped up and spoke truth to power when it would have been safer and easier just to go ahead and bow down. What we have here in scripture is a situation that's extreme with a threat of execution if they don't comply. But everyone who's ever been a leader of any sort knows what it is to realize now at last they've asked me to do something to approve of something, to allow something, to let something slip by me, and it isn't right, and I cannot do it. For Christians, there have been experiences down through the ages all the way to yesterday that end like this. A dictator or a petty tyrant, a local chief or a boss asks that the Christian do something wrong, or they ask the Christian to show reverence or to give honor to something that is neither holy nor good, whether it is prophets or corporate culture or political party or anything other than God Almighty. The aura of power and command they want to have propped up or burnished requires that something that is not God be worshiped and honored. To displease them might mean death or loss of status or dishonor or dismissal or demotion. In the here and now, this could look like a boss asking that a whistleblower keep quiet. It could look like a person in authority asking that you turn a blind eye to stealing or cheating. It could look like someone trying to buy or coerce cooperation so that the numbers look good or the sale goes through. It could be a research chief asking that you change experimental outcomes. It could be as small and simple as a coworker asking that you swipe them in when they aren't there. Whatever it is, if you do the thing you know you should not do, no matter the consequences, you will be forever diminished the world will be a worse 
and more corrupt place, and the kingdom will not bloom as brightly as it might have. You will have taken the first step down a bad path, and soon it will be harder and harder to remember what it was like to walk in the truth. Our life together becomes corroded when enough people do this, and everyone suffers. As Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? You need and I need to be clear on what right and wrong are, no matter the arena, no matter the jam we are in, no matter the consequences, because the world will push us to do the wrong. Sometimes all it takes is one person to stand up to turn a sick situation around. There's a bakery in our neighborhood. Next to it is a dry cleaner. The owner of the dry cleaner knows that he can come into the bakery and get a cookie or grab a Coke and that it's okay. But one day as I was there, that man came into the bakery and he walked back behind the counter and he asked the young girl working there for a cookie and he wanted something more than a cookie and he was grabbing at her. She was cringing but felt unable to tell him no. I looked around and realized no one is going to help her. So I said, what are you doing behind the counter? Do you work here? And he felt stared at and not able to continue, and he left. I got the free cookie that day, by the way. <laughs> and I wrote to the owner to tell her what I saw. She was not that happy with me, by the way, but that was not right, and someone had to say and do something. You may have noticed a story last winter about a woman put out of University of Maryland Hospital in Baltimore. And the story could have happened anywhere, really, anywhere where people let themselves think that doing wrong isn't wrong. A man waiting for a bus was shocked to find a woman in a hospital gown and socks in the bus stop in the freezing cold dark night. He turned and recorded with his cell phone security guards in big warm jackets pushing an empty wheelchair back into the hospital. He tried to speak to the woman who was weeping and incoherent. Her head was bandaged. She was distraught. He called 911. An ambulance was sent and she was taken back into that same hospital. The hospital expressed shock and disappointment in the way this patient was treated and they vowed to investigate. And it is a complicated issue to make an urban hospital responsive to all patients, especially homeless, uninsured patients, as she was. But if this man had not caught all of this on his cell phone, what would have happened to her? I can still see her and those security guards in their big warm jackets walking back inside. This woman could have been their own sister or mother. A nurse that I know looked at the footage of the woman and said, oh, she has several hospital gowns and hospital socks on. So a nurse in that hospital there knew she was going to be put outside and dressed her as warmly as she could, but she let her be put outside anyway. Were these people afraid they would lose their jobs? It haunts me. I hope that you feel the same. And she is one of thousands of people like her, probably. We never knew we had to step up and be leaders like the heroes in our story today, but we do. 
We have to know exactly where the line is that we will not cross. And we have to speak up. Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a sermon in November of 1954 entitled, Transformed Nonconformist. He said the Christian is called upon not to be like a therm thermometer conforming to the temperature of his society, but he must be like a thermostat serving to transform the temperature of his society. Jesus put us here not to simply observe, but to change things. Not to be a thermometer, but a thermostat. Not to just watch when wrong is done, but to be at work creating a world in which wrong does not go unchecked. We are here in this world to treat other people to heaven instead of hell. And it starts with standing up and saying, no, we should not do this, no matter what happens. By the way, I asked Carolina what her workplace calls it when you have to stand up and say, this is wrong, to a client or coworker or boss. And right away she said, we call it obligation to dissent. Obligation to dissent. And I would say we are all under this obligation and it is the Lord we are under obligation to. So back in Babylon, the three friends refused to worship the golden statue and their refusal drives Nebuchadnezzar crazy. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So we expect that our heroes will die a martyr's death, the end. But something different happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And three men emerged from the furnace, safe and well. There are a lot of ways we might have chosen to save our heroes. We might have drenched the furnace with rain like the rain we've been getting. We might have sent an angel army to smite the king, but God does not do that here. He does not take them out of the trouble. He sends someone to be with them in the trouble. I have Stephen ministers here at Peachtree whose calling it is to be the people who come alongside others in trouble. Are they like this fourth man? Could it be that you and I could be that fourth woman or fourth man for someone else? Can we come alongside someone in a time of trouble and just be with them, supporting and comforting them? If we're following Jesus, we will come to be more and more like him. We can do the kinds of things he does. We can be good company, good medicine for others. But the scripture describes the fourth man as someone like a son of the gods. That sounds like more than a fellow human being. It sounds supernatural. 
That figure provides not only companionship and support, but he preserves their lives. He's able to remain with them while they're under the power of the furnace and the king's fury. Rather than side with the king, the fourth man sides with those who are subject to his power. Who do you think that is? I picked up a book a while back. It was called The Third Man Factor by John Geiger. It could just as easily be called the fourth man factor, by the way. It's a fascinating collection of stories told by people who were on journeys of discovery, exploration, or endurance. People in extreme or emergency conditions. In the book are sailors, mountain climbers, polar explorers, people enduring natural disasters, even astronauts who have all reported the feeling that in a time of terrible danger and stress, at the point of death, there was someone with them who brought them through. Someone who told them not to give up. Sometimes this presence led them out of danger, gave them friendly advice, or provided help in keeping them sane. These presences led the person at risk to rescue and safety before disappearing. John Geiger calls that presence the third man. Here's one of his stories written for an NPR segment. It's about a man named Ron DeFrancesco who was caught on 9-11 in the South Tower after it was hit by the second airplane. He happened to go down the staircase that turned out to be the only one not made impassable by the disaster. He was groping his way down, unable to see more than a few feet ahead. He stopped at a landing in the middle of the impact zone on the 79th or 80th floor. It looked like the end of the line. Overcome by the smoke, he joined others, about a dozen people in all. Some stretched out face down on the concrete floor, others crouched in the corner, all of them gasping for air. They were blocked from descending further by a collapsed wall. He looked and could see panic in their eyes and fear. Several began to slip into unconsciousness. Then he said, someone told me to get up. Someone called me. The voice did not belong to one of the people in the stairwell. It was insistent, get up, it said. Hey, you can do this, it said. But it was more than a voice. There was also a vivid sense of a physical presence. He had the sensation that somebody lifted me up. He felt he was being guided. I was led to the stairs. I, I don't think something grabbed my hand, he said, but I was definitely led. He resumed his descent, and soon he saw a point of light. He followed it, fighting his way through debris that had collapsed and blocked the stairwell. There were flames in the path ahead but still someone helped him. It led me to the stairwell. It led me to break through. It led me to run through the fire. He covered his head with his forearms and continued to run down the smoky stairs. He ran through flames for three stories. Finally, he reached a clear lit stairwell below the fire on the 76th floor. Only then did the sense of a benevolent helper end. He said, I think at that point, it let me go. He emerged later at street level safely. And Ron Francesco was the last person out of the South Tower of the World Trade Center before it came down at 9.59 a.m. 
In Geiger's book, in situations where success appears to be impossible or death imminent, something happens. There, amid the anxiety, fear, and blood, is an outstretched hand offering a transfusion of energy, encouragement, wisdom. A presence appears, a third man who leads you out of the impossible. I think that the three friends thrown into the fiery furnace had the Lord with them at their side to help them. I don't know what the mechanism was that enabled them to leave the fire unharmed. It seems impossible. But they walked out into safety. And I believe God was with them in their experience. A God who sounds just like this passage from Isaiah. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The three friends in our story were not saved from the experience. They were accompanied in the experience. Sometimes people with a new and untried faith think that faith is all about being spared from an ordeal. What more often happens is that we have to go through the ordeal, but never, ever alone. As Christians in this world, we will have times when we have to be leaders, even when we are not used to that role. We will have challenges and we will have to stand up and say, this is wrong. This is not what the Lord would have us to do. And when that happens, we may not get a ticker tape parade. We may be in trouble. The good kind of trouble that makes the world a better place. The kind that shows our world heaven instead of hell. And no matter what happens to us next, we have someone on our side who will never leave us or forsake us. We will have the Lord at our side. Won't you pray with me now? O Lord, never leave us, especially when we must stand up and say, this is wrong. Help us to be leaders instead of silent and passive. Help us to have integrity like yours under pressure. Be with us in every fiery furnace, every ordeal of our lives. Be our Savior and our Redeemer and lead us safely through the trouble into our futures. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.